Well, good morning, High Point. Merry Christmas to all of you. I wanted to give one quick announcement before we get started this morning. Uh, this coming Thursday, we're going to have a Christmas Eve candlelight and communion service. It'll be at 5 p.m. Uh, it'll be about an hour long. Generally, we stick to that pretty close. So you also have plenty of time to be with your family. We would love you to come and be a part of that night. It's always a special night. And uh, so consider yourself invited. Bring your family. And we will still adhere to the social distancing and all of that. We'll probably have people on the balcony this time so we can spread people out a little bit more. But please come. We'd love to have you be a part of that. I want to start this morning by asking you to think about what it was that exactly began your journey to Jesus. I'd actually like to hear everybody's story because those stories inspire me when I get to hear people's different testimonies. I get excited when I hear about what it was that God used the, the people, the circumstances to draw people on their journey towards Jesus Christ. I read of a woman who was drawn to Jesus through, believe it or not, paintings, through artwork. She worked at a famous art museum, and while looking at all the great masterpieces depicting the life of Jesus, she felt drawn to learn more about him. My wife, Lisa's journey, began observing the life of a Christian woman that she worked with. Lisa was intrigued daily by how this woman reacted so differently and how she approached life so much differently from the others that she worked with. Finally, she came right out and asked her, what is it that makes you different? And that began a series of events that led to her salvation. My journey started out of brokenness. I was trapped deep in the bondage of sin. I couldn't find my way out, and all that I remember is that I kept remembering the many little things that I had learned about Jesus as a child, when finally I reached out to the only one who had the power to change my wretched life. And I'm sure you all have your own story of what led you to Jesus. And the reason that I bring all of this up is because we, as we continue in our Christmas series called Adventure, we're going to look at two groups of men who were drawn to that baby born in a manger, to the Messiah. And just like us, their journeys to Jesus started in different ways. First, there are the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night out in the outskirts of Bethlehem. They were just minding their own business, trying to get through another night, hoping that some storm wouldn't blow up and wreak havoc or that some predator wouldn't come down the hill and try to attack their flock. They were, they were just having some middle-of-the-night uh, shepherd chit-chat, if you will, between one another. How's the wife? How's the family? Oh, they're doing good. I am certain that they weren't expecting anything different that night than any other night before, when suddenly the sky lit up so bright it was as if every Christmas tree light in town came on at the same time. And angels in their God-given glory appeared, and they announced that a Savior had been born in Bethlehem. And when the shepherds got over the shock, they said to each other, let's go and let's see this thing that has happened. But you know, the truth is, there are a lot of people like that. They're just minding their own business. When they meet somebody who tells them or exhibits Jesus in their life, and all of a sudden, their heart starts to awaken. I mean, they're not on a spiritual search at all, but when they hear this news or they see this news, they have to investigate and they have to go and check out who this Jesus is. Well, then we have this second group of men in God's great adventure, the Magi. These men were not just hoping to get through the night. In fact, it was just the opposite. They couldn't wait for nighttime because when nighttime came, 
They looked at the stars. They scoured them and, and they, they studied them and they plotted them on charts. They also studied sacred books to learn about prophecies. And all this led them to pursue a lifelong quest to find the meaning of life. They had been spiritually hungry since youth. So when they saw this star, they followed that light and it drew them to Jesus. We don't know for certain what this star was that the Magi followed. It could have been a comet. Maybe it was a configuration of overlapping planets that God arranged in order to draw them to this journey. But I think the best explanation is that it was the miracle of God's Shekinah glory glowing in the sky. And it not only led them on a westerly, westerly trek, but to the very house where Christ was living with Mary and Joseph. And here's the deal. There's a lot of people like the Magi in our world today. They are people who are hungry for something more, something that only Jesus can provide. They believe that there must be a truth out there worth living for and, yes, even dying for. Many of us in the church refer to them as seekers, and that's an appropriate name. Well, the scriptures tell us that both the shepherd, shepherds and the magi responded to their unique leadings. Both groups went on a search to find Jesus. And this morning, I want to focus on these two groups of men in our fourth Christmas sermon in this series. And I want to see what we can learn from the part that they played in God's great adventure. So I want you to take your Bibles, and uh, we, their stories are found in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2. We will start in Luke chapter 2, which tells us about the shepherds, but I want to read together the accounts of the roles that the shepherds and the magi played in this, this first Christmas. Today I'll be reading from the New International Version. We'll start with Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his, his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now I want you to go back three books to the book of Matthew. We're going to read the account about the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What can we learn from these two group of men? Well, I think the first lesson is simple, and it can be found in the fact that these two groups of men couldn't have been any more different. For example, they were from a different social status entirely. The shepherds were dirty. They smelled like sheep. And due to the constant demands of their flock, they couldn't possibly observe all of the meticulous hand-washing and rules and regulations required in the Jewish religion. And to make matters worse, their flocks would often keep them away from the temple for weeks at a time. This meant that they could not be made ceremonially clean in the eyes of Jewish law. So for this and other reasons, shepherds were despised, and, and they were mistrusted by the people. They were thought to be crafty and dishonest, and people ascribed to them the uncanny ability to make off with things that didn't belong to them. Their reputation was so bad that they were not even allowed to testify in a court of law because it was, it was assumed that people like that would lie. Popular opinion was that shepherds were like gypsies and vagrants and, and thieves all rolled into one. They were looked down on as being a part of the lowest class of the lowest class in their culture. The wise men, on the other hand, were on the other end of the spectrum. They were men of, of great influence. They were definitely what we would call upper class. We see this evidence in the fact that when they came to Jerusalem looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, they had no trouble at all getting admission into Herod's palace and having an audience with the king himself, while the shepherds would not even have been allowed to come into the outer courts. The second thing for us to note is they had a completely different financial status. The shepherds were among the poorest of the poor, while the magi were the richest of the rich. The shepherds, in fact, had no possessions to speak of. They had their work. But as far as their work was concerned, nothing paid less. We know that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was considered poor. But even Joseph was far better off than these, these men who were entrusted with the sheep. So when the shepherds came to the manger where Jesus laid, they didn't bring gifts because they couldn't afford gifts. And even if they could have afforded gifts, they wouldn't have been gifts that they would have wanted to give to the king anyway. On the other hand, the wise men were obviously men of substance. They not only had enough money to embark on this long journey, 
but they also had a leisurely life that allowed them to do so. And they could afford a large entourage, including servants and cooks and people to take care of their camels and their livestock. And even they had soldiers that would protect them on their journey. And when they arrived, they presented the Christ child with very expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The third thing to note here is that they were vastly different in education. Shepherds had no formal schooling whatsoever. They were not even able to read the, the Jewish scriptures. By contrast, the Magi were famed for their knowledge. This is why even today, most people refer to them as the wise men. They probably came what is known as modern-day Iran, and they were noted for their knowledge of religious documents, of healing arts, and of astronomy. They were professors of their day. They were the scholars of their time. Their teachings became known as the law of the Medes and the Persians. In fact, both the Magi and their laws are referred to in the Old Testament books of both Esther and Daniel. These laws of the Magi were, were seen in Persia as the highest unalterable legal code. In fact, our word magistrate comes from this word Magi. So these guys were, were learned men, scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, doctors, and, and they were legal authorities of their culture. And they had no doubt studied the Jewish scriptures and read prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. You see, they would have had access to these scriptures during the seven decades when the Jews were held in captivity in Babylon. So I am certain that they were familiar with passages of scriptures like Numbers 24, 17 that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. They may have even realized that their coming had fulfilled a prophecy found in Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Because of their great learning, when the Messiah's star appeared, they were not only the ones who saw it and recognized it, but they understood what it meant. And then you're going to find there's one final difference between the Magi and the shepherds, and it is the distance that they traveled to accept this invitation from God. Luke said that the shepherds were, were very close, close enough as to get there not long after Jesus was born. He had maybe only been a few hours old when they arrived at the manger where he lay. Now, we don't exactly know how long the Magi had to travel, but we can infer that it could have been as long as a two-year journey. And the reason that I say that is um, when, when Herod inquired of them of when exactly they saw the star, he responded to their, their news by ordering all male children in Bethlehem under the age of two or younger to be killed. In any case, the wise men had been on their journey for quite some time. And in Matthew 2.11, it explains by the time that they arrived, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus were living in a house. They came from the far reaches of the world, whereas the shepherds were so close to his birth, they were in the hills surrounding Bethlehem. What's interesting about that is all of our uh, little scenes of Christmas have the wise men and the shepherds at the same place at the same time. And that's just not the case. The, wise, the shepherds were there that night. 
the wise men came after they were living in a home. So the, the Christ child had actually, had actually aged some since then. So these two groups were so different in many different ways. Therefore, I think we can draw a very important truth of how God chose to reach out to both of these groups of men. You see, the vast differences between the shepherds and the magi reveal that Christ came for everyone. Rich or poor, educated or illiterate, near or far, Jew or Gentile, Christmas is not just for one segment of society. It's not for people who live in only one part of the planet. It's for all of us. And, you know, you may be unimportant in, in the eyes of most people, or, or you may be a very important person. You may be a mere cog in the machine of the place where you're employed, or you may be the owner or the CEO. You may have grown up in a Christian home, or you may have grown up in a home where the word Jesus was never even spoken. But understand something, none of that matters whatsoever. The reason that Jesus came was to be the Savior of all people, to be the Savior of all mankind. You know, many other religions of the world seem to be localized or culturally driven. Buddhism and Hinduism largely consist of those from Asian countries, while Islam is practiced largely in Arab nations. Even Judaism is most heavily practiced in Israel. But some people have foolishly embraced this misconception that Christianity and its Christmas story is for white people only. We understand that that is very wrong because Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah for everyone. Just like when the angel told the shepherds that, 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 that with the child that was born would be born for all. That they would be for all people. He would be for all people. You know, Christmas is not just for one race. It's not for just one ethnic group. But like our little children's songs that we sing in Sunday school says, it's for red and yellow and black and white because we're all precious in his sight. Because no matter how we may appear differently on the outside or how we even respond to life circumstances, on the inside, human beings are all the same down to the core. All of us have this same inner need for a Savior. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20, or 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So let me stop for just a moment and point out that God's constant passion is to save and to seek that which is lost. That's the main thought that is constantly on his omniscient mind. He loves all people, and he longs for them to repent of their sin and to come into a relationship with him. And according to the Bible, how many ways are there to God? One. We only come to God through Christ Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And though the only way to the Father is through his son Jesus, there are tons of things that God uses in order to draw us to him. I mean, he draws people to Jesus in a vast variety of ways. He's not willing that any should perish. He's, his, his, his desire is that we would all come to repentance. So he draws people from wise men to shepherds with his great love and in every way conceivable. That is what Paul was getting at 
when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. God will use whatever means are available to him to draw people to him, everything from beautiful works of art to someone that you work with, and he will even use you if you will allow it. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to live our lives in such a way that we shine like stars in a dark and depraved world. In any case, the experience of these vastly different men who first received God's invitation shows us that the news of Christmas is for all people. God sent his son for everyone. But there's a second lesson that we can draw from the example of the shepherds and the wise men, and it is this. Our main response to Jesus' coming should be worship. I say this because it is exactly what both the groups did when they found the Christ child. In Matthew 2.11, it says this about the Magi. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. In fact, they told Herod that the purpose of their long journey was to worship the newborn king. And when the shepherds returned from their visit to see the baby Jesus, Luke says that they were glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and they had seen. So I think this clearly shows us the most appropriate way for us, you and me, to observe Christmas. And it's not within our cultural, seasonal obsession with things, but it's worship. It's not so much about giving to others as it is giving to the Lord and to his kingdom as to further his kingdom. In fact, the word Christmas literally means the mass of Christ. So the word itself refers to an annual time of worshiping God, praising him for sending his only son to be born so that he could fulfill his mission so many years ago. Reverend Joseph Tan was a Baptist pastor who served in Romania before the fall of the Iron Curtain. Pastor Tan told that how before communism, the Romanians celebrated Christmas with the giving of gifts. They also had feasts and Christmas caroling was done by all ages as well as special worship services were going on everywhere. But when the communists took over Romania, Christmas was no longer a legal holiday. Everybody had to go to work that day just like any other day. And for many people, the customs of Christmas died. But among the truly born-again people of Romania, the traditions concerning worshiping Christ and celebrating his birth did not end. Evangelical churches would hold services in the morning and the evening, both before work and after work. And not only on Christmas Day, but on the 26th of December, which they called the second day of Christmas. And Christmas caroling continued in spite of the fact that for many years, the police worked hard to stop the people from participating in that religious activity. One Christmas, the police actually attacked the choir and beat down some of the carolers who were caroling. But the singers came out again next year, and they were welcomed by the many others who didn't sing, but, 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 but were, because they were afraid to join them, they greeted the worshipers thankfully often with tears in their eyes, thanking them for continuing to do so. And they did this even at the risk of arrest because worship is the natural response, should be the natural response to anyone who has met the word 
who became flesh and who dwelled among us, Jesus. You see, Christmas is empty unless we set aside some time to join the angels in coming together and adoring Christ the Lord. And to be clear, worship for the Christian is not just on Christmas Day. It's not just a once a week thing here in the service. It needs to be an everyday thing for us. Worship is daily giving our lives to Jesus, making him Lord and King of, of, of our, over our lives as well as our, even our decisions. Ironically, Herod understood this, but he didn't want to share his throne with anybody. So he sent soldiers in an attempt to, to find and to kill the Christ child. And you know, there is a sense in which many of us are like Herod even today. I'm not suggesting that we're out to kill Jesus, but we still don't worship him as Lord of all. You see, the problem is you can't rule your life and have Jesus rule it as well. You can't be possessor of all your possessions and have Jesus as the possessor of your possessions as well. It's one or the other. It can't be both. The truth is, in our hearts, we often set Jesus up as a rival to our kingdom. We say, Jesus, you can rule as long as it's okay with me and you don't encroach upon the areas that I have decided that you don't have any dominion over. These are things that are personal to me and, and, and you, don't, you don't touch them. And I think we see this in the, the sexual customs of our day. For example, I am stunned and I am saddened at how many Christians will participate in a sexual relationship outside of the confines of marriage and give it no thought whatsoever. And even as I've had conversations with people about this very topic, I find that there is a sense of somehow uh, I am the exception here. Jesus is not on the throne when it comes to my sexual activity. I'm also saddened by how many Christians have not been able to trust God enough to give them their tithe, to offer him the first fruits, as it says in the scriptures. And in essence, what they're saying is, I'm the Lord of my checkbook, Jesus. I know more about handling money than you do, and if I need your help, hey, I'll give you a call and we'll talk. And I think we all have a little bit of Herod's heart in us when we say things like, Jesus, this thing that I'm going through, this struggle is just too scary. It's too big for me to trust you with, so I'll just handle things on my own. And when things get better, when the fear passes, then I'll set you back up on a throne that's level with mine. I have to say, in my own personal experience, that never works. And it should never work, because an abundant life, a joy-filled life that works is really consistent when you offer worship. It's consistently saying, Jesus, you are on the throne, and not me. You command, and I will gladly obey your leading. So to review, the experience of these shepherds and these magi teach us that Jesus came for everyone, that Christmas is for the entire world. They also teach us that the best way for us to celebrate this awesome news is by worshiping God with every part of our lives. But you know, the greatest truth that we can see 
and the part, their participation in this great adventure is simply this. Anyone who seeks Jesus will find him. We have read the biblical account that says both of these groups responded to the invitation of the birth of Jesus. They tried to find him. For example, the shepherds, as soon as they heard the angel's news, they wasted no time at all. They set out at once and they found the manger that held the Christ child. And the wise men, well, they had no doubt been anticipating the birth of Jesus for some time. So when the star appeared, they were not very long at setting out on their own journey. And after many months, they found Jesus too. This all reminds me of the promises found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 29, where he said, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. If we truly want to know Jesus, when we look for him, just like those magi and shepherds, we will find him. And you know why this happens? Do you know why when we seek God, we always find him? Because he's looking for you too. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So to be clear, it's not that God is lost and we're looking to find him. No, we are lost in our sin. The Bible says that like dim-witted sheep, we have all gone astray. And the glorious news of Christmas is that Jesus, the good shepherd, has come to bring us back to God. All we have to do is to cry out, and he will come to us. And it's within that heart's cry. It is within that seeking that we find God's open arms, and we will discover that he is nearer to us than we ever, ever realized. I read a story of a church member named Bully. He was a gentleman who got the nickname from barking orders on construction sites. Someone noticed the large amount of scars that were on his hands, and they asked him, Bully, how'd you get all these many different cuts? And Bully told of a story about a tsunami that hit the Hawaiian Islands in the 1960s. This is what he said. I was working above the bay that our home overlooks. One morning, the tide receded so much that the children ran out to catch fish in the tide pools left behind. We'd never witnessed the tide so low before, and it gave the kids an unprecedented opportunity to play and romp through the reefs that now protruded above the waterline like newly formed islands in the ocean. But what we didn't know was that the ocean was preparing to unleash the largest tsunami our sleepy little town had ever experienced. Within minutes, a 60-foot wave charged our unsuspecting town with a force we'd never seen before. The hungry waters rushed inland. Like bony fingers, the waters scratched and pulled homes, cars, possessions, and people back into a watery grave. The devastating power of that wave left in its wake twisted buildings, shattered windows, splintered homes, and broken dreams. I ran as fast as I could to our home where I found my wife sobbing uncontrollably. Robbie is missing, she shouted. I can't find Robbie. Robbie was our six-month-old child who was asleep in the house when the ocean raged against our helpless village. I was frantic as I looked over the shore, strewn with the remains of the frail stick houses that were now piled in heaps along the sands. Realizing that another wave may soon be following, I began running on top of the wooden structures, tearing up pieces of twisted, corrugated roofs 
that were ripped like discarded remains of a demolition project. I tore up one piece after another, running over boards and broken beams until I heard the whimpering of a child under one of the mattresses that had gotten lodged beneath an overturned car. I reached under and pulled up my little son, Robbie. I tucked him under my arm like a football player running for the end zone. Then I sprinted back over the debris until I reached my wife. We ran for higher ground, hugging our child and one another, thanking God for his mercy. Just then, my wife said, Bully, your feet and your hands, you're covered in blood. I had been wearing tennis shoes, and I didn't realize that as I ran over the wreckage, I was stepping on protruding nails and screws that had been exposed in the rubble. And as I pulled back the torn, corrugated roof, roofing looking for Robbie, the sharp edges tore into my hands. I was so intent on finding my boy that nothing else mattered. I wanted to read that account to you this morning to remind you of the passionate and the consuming love that a father has for his lost children. Nothing else matters. Nothing is more important to your heavenly father than saving all of his lost children. So when one of us cries out to him, seeking to know him, he responds, if we seek God, we will find him. And you know something, in spite of all of the diverse characteristics between the Magi and the shepherds, they had another very important thing in common. They were both wise enough to follow where God was leading them. You know, often in our individual lives, we receive leadings from God. But sadly, more times than not, we keep them inside. We kind of brush them off to the side and we do absolutely nothing about them or with them. Well, not these two group of men. Though diversely different, they were in complete unison in their response to God's leading. And, being, and in being obedient to his leading, they experienced something that very few ever had the privilege of witnessing. The advent of Jesus Christ. And their lives, I am certain, were never, ever the same again. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? You know, there is something that, that I need to ask you this morning, and it is this. Where is God leading you today? Perhaps you're a Christian and you feel that God is leading you into a deeper relationship with him. Maybe you're somebody that has a great deal of biblical knowledge, but unlike the Magi, you haven't been acting on it. You haven't been applying that knowledge to your daily life. Maybe you've been raised in a, in a Christian home, but you've never decided to allow Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your personal life. You're kind of living on your family's faith, but you have none of your own. And maybe for the first time in a long time, God has guided you as he did those men, the shepherds and the magi. He's guiding you to the point that you have been confronted now with the truth of the Savior of the world. And today, anybody who's listening to me, whether you're online or you're in this building, you have a decision to make. You can repent of your sin, accept him as Lord of your life, or you can reject him and you can walk out of this place or walk away from your computer screen or your TV and, and be unchanged. 
But you know what I found? You cannot truly celebrate Christmas in the truest sense of celebration until you decide to accept God's gift of salvation that he offered us through Christ Jesus. The truest form of worship is when we decide to step aside and give our lives to the Lord and allow him lordship over us. And so I want to encourage anybody who has not made that decision to make that decision this morning. And I will tell you that when you make that decision, you will sit back and you will see how God will transform your life. The greatest gift that God ever gave us was the gift of Jesus. And I can't think of a better Christmas gift for you to give your Lord than to give your life over to him during this Christmas season. Maybe God is leading you to make High Point your, your church home. It's a place where you can grow in your faith, where you can develop meaningful relationships with other Christian men and women. Perhaps God is leading you to serve in his kingdom in some way or the other. You've got special gifts. You've got talent. You, you've got things that, that you have not up to this point been using for God's kingdom. Maybe God is, is calling you simply to, simply to trust him more. You say you trust him, but when things get rough, when the rubber hits the road, you trust in your own instincts. And because of that, you made some bad choices. You made some wrong decisions. And you find yourself in a place that you never ever wanted or expected, all because you had to be in charge. You know, 2020 has been the most unusual year of my life, and I'm sure most of you would probably say the same thing. We have been so caught up with this coronavirus. It fills our conversations. You can't have a conversation on any day of any week and, not, and, and, and COVID not come up. And then the typical conversations are how, yes, it's serious and people are dying, but then we complain about how the government's responded and all the restrictions that have been put on us and the freedoms that have been taken away from us. And I get that. I understand it. But I'm here to say this morning, and I believe this with all my heart, I fear that we've gotten so caught up in this that we've lost our focus. We've lost our focus. We're just spinning our wheels. We're just existing, waiting for things to change and get back to normal. We don't know for sure if things are ever gonna get back quite to normal. We don't know what normal's gonna look like after this point. My prayer is that we will get back to normal. But what if we don't? I think we're just sitting around waiting for things to change. God doesn't want us to wait when it comes to the leadings that he's giving us. He doesn't want us to put our Christian faith on hold like I think many of us are doing. What I'm trying to say to you this morning is this. Whatever God is leading you to do this morning, you gotta act upon it. There's no more time to wait. We waited a long time for the Savior to come. He's already come. There's nothing more to wait for. He has come to redeem us. He has come to use us to fulfill his kingdom's purposes. We can't sit back and not be engaged any longer. Because to not follow God's leadings is going to keep you spinning your wheels. Maybe you're comfortable spinning your wheels where you're at right now. I hope you're not. Because the point is God has so much more in store for this church and for those who, who make up this church. But we will never know until we truly give him 
the throne of our lives until we truly say, I hear you, God, and I'm going to respond to what it is that you are leading me to do. Whatever the Lord has been leading you to do, today would be a good time to say, Jesus, I hear you. And today, I am going to be obedient and I'm going to respond to that leading. Today would be a good day to put everything on the line for in your relationship with Jesus. And we're going to pray in just a moment, but before we pray, I want to use the example that was established by the Magi and the wise men and have a time where we're worshiping Jesus. I've asked the worship team to lead us in a couple choruses. And before we pray, while we're singing these songs, let's use this as a time where we worship the Lord. What I mean by that is open up your heart, open up your mind, open up your spirit. Let's not just go through the motions and sing this song, but let's make these words to this song real to us. Let's, as we sing those words, let's envision what we're singing. Let's truly take a few moments to worship God. And then I will come and we will close in prayer. And during that prayer time, we'll give every one of us an opportunity to reconcile whatever it is that the Lord has been laying on your heart, either this day or in the weeks, in the months previous. Scott. Please stand to your feet. Let's worship. Oh, come, let us adore. Oh, come, let us adore. Oh, come, let us adore. In
Jesus says, Father, just like you called the wise men and the magi so many years ago to the birth of Christ, you still call out to all of us to come and find our Savior. And I thank you that he can be found. I thank you that with one sincere word spoken or thought, that we need a Savior, that we need forgiveness, that we need a Lord in our life. You are faithful to save. You are faithful to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father so that we can have the assurance and the hope of life, eternal life in the presence of God whenever it is you call us home. I thank you for that promise. I thank you for the first Christmas where Jesus came, vulnerable as a child, but he grew up and he taught us how to live and how to love and how to serve. And he showed us the way to the Father and that death on the cross followed by his resurrection gives us the ability to defeat death in the grave just like he did and to be in your presence. We thank you for that. Father, I pray of anybody that's here watching online who does not know you, they would pray a simple prayer of forgiveness, of accepting you as Lord and allowing you lordship over their life, that they would allow us as a church to come alongside of them and to, to disciple them in their faith in God. Lord, whatever you're calling us to do today, I, I pray that my church family would respond. For some of us, you've been calling us to do some things for a long time, and we've just continued to stuff it in our back pocket. God, give us the courage to act on what you've asked of us, knowing that if you're calling us, then you're behind it, and there is no way that we can fail. It may not be as exactly as we think, but God, it will be done in your way and in your time, and it will always bear fruit. And that's what we want. As followers of Jesus, we want to bear fruit in our lives and we want to bear fruit as a church. And the only way we can do that is when all of us listen to your voice, listen to your leadings and act upon them. That's when we make progress. That is when we see the greatest things happening within your body. And so, Father, I pray that you'll be with every member of this church, every person who watches online, everyone who attends this place, Lord God, that this Christmas would be the most special Christmas they've ever had. It's been an unusual year. Maybe we're expecting an unusual Christmas as well. But God, I have learned that it is what we make of it. And I pray that because we've been forced to slow down, we've been forced to not be able to do things that maybe take up a lot of our time, that our thoughts and our prayers and our, and our focus has gone on you more this Christmas than any other time. And if that has not happened, then I pray that that would be the case with all of us. And God, I pray that this week as we celebrate the birth of the Savior, that it would be a very special time for our church families, that we would realize the real reason you came, and more importantly, we would realize the things that you've called us to do to further your kingdom. So God, I pray your hand to be upon all of us. As we leave this place today, I ask for your protection from COVID. I ask for your protection from accidents or any other sickness. Pray that you will keep us safe until we gather together again. Holy Spirit, I ask that you guide and direct our steps, the things we do, the conversations that we have, the places we go. Let our conversations be used for building up and blessing and not tearing down. And Father, use us to be bright lights in a dark world where someone may come to us and say, so what is it about you that makes you different? Because I can sense something in you 
And that's the love of God. And Father, I pray that that love would be on, on exhibit for all to see. And it would open opportunities for us to share your goodness with others. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have spent together. I thank you for this time of year where we celebrate the greatest event in all of history when the Messiah came and set into action salvation. What a precious gift it is. We thank you for it. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love and sending him our way and for the ultimate sacrifice that he made where he died on that cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And we too can have that resurrection power within our lives to fulfill the things you've asked us to do. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the presence of your spirit. As we go our separate ways, I pray your blessings upon my church family. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. Merry Christmas.